Pizza Friday, Oroquete with Broccoli Rob, and Moving to Italy During a Pandemic. This week, we're in Puglia. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we take a trip to a different foodie hotspot and explore the cuisine that makes it sparkle. This week, we're in one of my favorite places, Puglia, Italy. Now, if Puglia doesn't immediately ring a bell, that's because it's not nearly as famous as some of the other places in Italy, like Tuscany or Rome or Venice, but Puglia has a lot to love, and one of the main attractions is the food. Some call Puglia the breadbasket of Italy because so many vegetables are grown there. Puglia is also a huge olive oil-producing region and is becoming known for wine production, especially Primitivo. And my guest today is Katie Quinn. Katie was on the show a few months ago. She was talking about her book, Cheese, Wine, and Bread, Discovering the Magic of Fermentation in England, Italy, and France. That episode is still available at radiomisfits.com slash DED126. Katie is also a YouTuber with a great channel dedicated to food, recipes, and her life in Puglia with her husband, Connor. So I wanted to have Katie back on the show to talk about Italy, and we have another fun conversation about traveling with sourdough starter, the local burrata cheese, and an amazing local focaccia that I was not aware of. Plus, I share some crackpot theories about bread and wine, and there's pasta too. And if you want to know more about Puglia, I wrote a whole foodie travel guide to the city of Lecce in the region of Puglia. And Katie and I talked about so many things, but we don't even mention Lecce, a great foodie city in its own right. But you can read about that and what I had to say about the ornate Baroque city at DestinationEatDrink.com slash Lecce. That's L-E-C-C-E. So we've got all that coming up. But if you like the podcast, please just take a second and give us a five-star review on your podcast app, whatever that might be. Folks like Vale Law reviewed the podcast and said, I swim in the mornings and Destination Eat Drink podcast is my favorite swim companion. Thanks, Vale Law. Destination Eat Drink. Katie Quinn, thank you so much for being back on Destination Eat Drink. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks for being. Thanks on for the having show. me back. Yeah, thanks, Brent. It's always fun to talk to you. So, my first question to you, Katie, is: You moved to Italy right in the middle of a pandemic. My question <laughs> <Yes>. is: <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> I ask myself that question <laughs> all the time. Uh, yes, I don't know. Yes and no. It's it was the best decision I ever made. So I think in retrospect, no, not crazy. Although at the time, it certainly felt potentially really foolish. Um, but it's panned out. Anyone who goes to Italy, this has been my experience. Anyone who goes to Italy and comes back always says the exact same thing, and that's I wish we could move there, or we're mm. going to move there. You actually did it. How? I found out. When I was when I was researching my book, Cheese, Wine, and Bread, which you you know all about, um, 
I I was I was traveling around Italy researching wine in Italy for the book. And I knew that I had Italian ancestors. I knew that my great grandparents were from Southern Italy and then immigrated to the States around the turn of the century. Um, But I didn't know much more than that. Uh, Well, I decided to find out though. I was like, I'm in Southern Italy visiting this vineyard. And supposedly my great grandfather was born in this small town, like an hour's drive away. I should go explore. Yes. Um, And let me see if I can like, I don't know, get some documents to prove something, you know, that like he was actually there. Um, That would be fun. That would be cool. Ended up, ended up doing that to make a long story short. And and I write about it in the book. It was an incredible on, like basically I had all the wrong information on him. So it was like a miracle that I found anything. And then, so I got the document, realized I was, I was eligible for Italian dual citizenship. It's like, that's cool. I started gathering some other documents, went back to London where I lived with my husband and kind of continued on with life. Then COVID hit, everything hit the fan. Uh, my husband lost his job and hence our visa for being our, our visa and reason for being in England. Um, and so to me, it was a complete no brainer. Like, I have these documents proving I can be a citizen in Italy. Let's move to Italy and do this. <laughs> Let's pursue this because why not? I like the cut of your sail, Katie. I mean, that is just, <laughs> that is awesome. Um, we are people, me and my girlfriend are people who have moved four times in two years. Mm. And I can say that, you know, moving has become for us less and less stressful because we have stopped accumulating things and we have yeah. gotten rid of so many things. Whereas we're getting you, into- You realize you realize how light you can live, don't you? Totally. And yeah. we're getting to the point now where we're thinking about moving soon again. And basically we are going to be in the three suitcase club. I mean, that is it. Mm-hmm. That is all we're <laughs> planning on taking. Um, and I, I tell you this simply because I watched some videos where you're moving And I'll tell you, you've got your priorities straight because it's like clothes and family heirlooms. And I got to bring my sourdough starter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about moving sourdough starter, which is a very perishable item, right? I mean, uh, it it, it can't be easy to do. Tell me how you did it. Not only is it perishable, but you, because it's like this liquidy type thing, you can't, you can't uh, put it in your bag and bring it on the plane with you. I mean, you could check it, but, um, you know, it can't be a carry on item. Yeah. My sourdough starter, I really equate that and the ability to make sourdough bread with home Mm. more, more so than books or clothes or anything else that I could bring with me is like, if I can make bread somewhere, that space becomes home for me. That feels like home for me. Mm. So the the way that I like to travel with sourdough starter, and there are many, there are many ways. Um, I like to dehydrate it, which is probably because it's the easiest. <laughs> you do nothing <laughs> different than you would normally do, except for after you feed your sourdough starter, instead of covering it like I would normally do as it ferments, um, I leave it uncovered. So then that top part of the starter just dries out basically. 
And then, and not only does it just dry out, it dries out at peak of fermentation. So fermentation is like a bell curve and it dries out right around the, the tip of the bell curve. So that means all of the active bacteria and yeast are a part of that dried out portion of the sourdough starter. Um, so then the next day I'll kind of peel back the semi-dried portion of the starter and I'll just put it on a plate or, you know, whatever in a bowl, uh, and leave it out to further dry out until it's just come until it's just a dried piece of, <laughs> of what of starter. Um, and then I wrap it up and tuck it in my bag or my pocket or whatever I want. And, um, travel with it. When I get to where I'm going, when I get to my destination, my destination, eat, drink, (laughs) all you have to do is rehydrate it. So just add some water to it and then feed it again. And, and you've got your sourdough starter. I don't know a lot about sourdough. I I was one of the few people who back during lockdown did not (laughs) get into the sourdough thing. I got into the the dried bean thing. Those were were basically the two options (laughs) during lockdown in the U.S., dried beans or sourdough starter. So I don't know a lot about sourdough starter. But my question is, after you dry it out, are those microbes, are those little microbes still in the sourdough starter? Or are, are you, when you say you have to reactivate it, is that what you're adding back in? So two things, they're, they're kind of asleep. Some of them are dead. Some of them are asleep. Okay. Um, when you, when you rehydrate it, you're kind of waking up the, the bacteria that that's in there. Then when you feed it again with more water and more flour, you are feeding the, the yeast and bacteria in it so that they multiply. So there's some in there and they're tired, they're sluggish, and there's not many at that point. Most of them have died away because they have, they've been napping and not feeding. Um, but once you feed them, then they multiply and they're happy and, um, become robust again. So that's why you call it reactivating. That totally makes sense. And so you've been, you've got the sourdough starter. People are very protective of their sourdough starter. Um, you know. Which is kind of silly, but I also understand No, it. I totally. It's like, it's like a pet. <laughs> it's alive, man. It is truly alive. Yeah. Um, tell me about some of the things since you've been in Italy that you've made using your sourdough starter. Uh, so every week, every single Friday, I make sourdough pizza. Um <sighs> We have pizza Friday at my house too. Every Friday. <gasps> Do you really? Oh yeah, love it. I knew that. I knew. I knew we we could be friends. We, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's it's such a wonderful tradition, isn't it? And, and just ritual in the in the crazy time of COVID. <laughs> it's absolutely it's so wonderful. Absolutely. So, uh, tell me about your pizza. How's how's your sourdough pizza? How do you make it? I'm sure you do. All kinds of wonderful different things. Tell me a couple of your favorites, Katie. Well, are you talking about in terms of toppings? Uh, yeah, or just yeah, method or toppings or both. Let's just okay. let's just totally dive into it. Let's go down the rabbit hole. Let's totally dive in. So, I have my my pizza dough recipe is about at sixty percent hydration. So it's a fairly low hydration because I found that it just makes it so much easier to work with and to get the kind of when when I'm shaping my final pizza dough that round um just really able to 
you know, toss it up in the air and, and, and stretch it out just like you've seen the, um, people do in, in Naples, the <laughs> pizzaiolo, um, do in Naples. Uh, so, so fairly low hydration. Um, the way I've made it since I come to Italy has actually changed a bit, mostly because of the flowers available here are different than the flowers that I had in England. They're different than the flowers you would find in the United States also. Um, so semola rimacinata is this, is this kind of flower here that comes. So semola wheat is a hard durum wheat and it is really typical of Southern Italy. So of, of this region. And it's, it's kind of like beautifully yellow. It's got this really yellow tint to it. Um, and, and it's great. And it's got a really high protein, which is, great for creating gluten which we want to do when we create when we make a pizza dough um typically though i would use bread flour if i were in the states or in england um and then maybe a bit of whole wheat flour in there uh you know i i, I kind of have fun with flours like changing things up but i would say the the main the majority flour would be a strong bread flour or or the semola rimacinata in Puglia, what kind of toppings would you put on your pizza? Have you discovered anything in the cuisine or in the markets there that you think, oh, this would go perfect on my pizza, on my Katie Quinn's pizza? Ooh, so, I mean, we experiment. This week is different. So we have not done, and I'm saying we, my husband Connor is, has, is like very, very into our pizza nights as well. And I'm the dough girl. So, and I start the dough a day prior. So Thursday morning, I start the dough that we will eat on Friday evening. And he, I mean, we both do the toppings, but like he's toppings guy. He's, <laughs> he gets like super, super into it. And, um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, the markets here are incredible. It's all super local, super seasonal, and therefore very, very fresh. And so, yeah, we'll just have fun grabbing things and just like I don't even know the name of this or like it's like learning the name of it and um and and experimenting with it one of the first things that comes to mind is chimedi rapa which is I mean it's in like the broccoli rob family um and it's it's this beautiful bitter green and I love making actually like a, a kind of pesto with it, mm. um, but with um, anchovies. So anchovies, a little bit of sautéed garlic, olive oil, a little, a little red pepper, pepperoncino, and it's um, and it's just like a pretty stellar pesto-y type thing. So I think that that's a beautiful base for for any pizza. It sounds just like. Typical, wonderful Southern Italian ingredients. Totally. Any totally. other any other veggies that you found in the uh, local market that you're especially enamored with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's this there's this veg called um, lampachoni, and it is when I first saw them at the market, I just honestly I hardly even acknowledged that they were there because I just thought they were like dirty small onions. I didn't know it's this like. <laughs> bulbous plant and they they're just like dirty looking um then i learned that actually it it it's tied into this concept of cucina povera which is 
Are you familiar with that term? Poor, poor man's cuisine or peasant's food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's tied to the history of Italy when there was a, it was a very economic, uh, economically challenged place. So that's why so many people, especially in Southern Italy, immigrated to the States, Argentina, to Brazil. Um, anyway, so I love the concept. I don't necessarily love the name like poor man's food because, um, I think that the concept is really beautiful. It's all about seasonal food. It's about making the most of very little. And that's exactly what Lampachoni are. They are these bulbous things dug up from the ground and very simply prepared with some olive oil, some vinegar and, uh, oh, boiled and then peeled and eaten with olive oil and vinegar. They're, they're really simple and they're really, they're really wonderful. And with like a nice glass of white wine, like hmm. a piano on a, on a sunny day, it's the perfect aperitivo snack. And are these in the onion family? Do they have an oniony flavor to them? Yes, but they're way more bitter. Oh, good. Um, I love the yeah, bitter vegetables so, of Southern Italy. Oh my God. Yeah. There I have, I have quite enamored as well. Um, but yeah, so they are onion-esque, but I I don't think that they're an allium. I don't think they're in the allium family, actually. Well, I love this idea of poor man's cuisine, but I always, and, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, Katie, I'm always reluctant to use the term because people can think of it as a pejorative. You know, we're not right. we're not insulting the people. This is what they did in order to survive in poor times. And now that the region is definitely more economically well off, they're preserving these traditions. And I I find that in southern Italy and Puglia, one of those is um, in the pasta making because oh, yeah. the pastas are made with wheat and uh, flour and water only. There's no Basta. eggs. That's it. Yeah. There's no eggs involved yeah. because eggs were considered a luxury. That's how poor this area was. Even eggs were considered a luxury. Talk about the pasta of Puglia a little bit. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, eggs in pasta, that was thought to be a Northern Italian thing. Like that's how those rich Northerners make rich pasta. pasta. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like down here, we, we make, we make pasta with, with flour and water. And that's it, basta. And the the kind of flour again of this region, and and I mentioned it um, when I was talking about my my dough for pizza um, is semola, and it's 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 frequently what's used to make. I know that you also love this pasta, like orecchiette. Yes, love it. Which is which is a shape known in in Puglia. Um, and the town near me, uh, Bari, is especially known for their orecchiette making because these nonas, like these, you know, grandmas sit out and make, make their orecchiette, um, just on the street <laughs> and, and talk and roll out pasta and shape them. And, um, yeah, I mean, I could go on about orecchiette, but one of my favorite things about those, the, the pasta grannies of Bari is that they are now, YouTube stars, like these little <laughs> grandmothers who sit in an alley and make orecchiette all day long. And now you go on to YouTube and you'll see videos with millions and millions and millions of views. These pasta grannies who have been doing this for 
I don't know, 50 years at least, and their oh, yeah. grandmothers were doing it and their grandmothers were doing it. My my favorite dish to have with the orecate is uh, with the broccoli rob. Um, yeah, the chimedi rapa. The it's quintessential Apulian uh, uh, dish. Describe this a little bit for us. Oh, I love this dish too. I can't get enough of it. So it's with this ingredient, chimedi rapa. As you said, it's like the broccoli rob type of green bitter green um and this is the vegetable actually that i brought up that i love to make a pesto with for my pizzas so the way you make this orecchiette con leci medirapa is such a beautiful thing about it is you just blanch the chimedirapa at the same time like in the same salted heavily salted water that you're cooking the orecchiette in so in terms of cleanup it's like you don't get many things dirty <laughs> so boil some water heavily salt it, put the orecchiette in there, put the put your veg in there, the chimedirapa. And then on a pan, hefty, hefty glugs of olive oil, some red pepper, some pepperoncino is what you can look for or ask for um, here in Italy. Um, a couple of anchovies, like two to three anchovies. And it does not impart a fishy flavor at all. It just gives the dish it just gives it this incredible umami rounded flavor. I remember I told my parents about this dish shortly after I moved here and I was just like so, so in love with it and was making it all the time. And and then my mom was like, oh, yeah, I made that dish you talked about. And I was like, oh, awesome. And then we were talking about it a bit more and that she didn't include the anchovies. Mm. And I was like, well, then mom, it's not the dish because <laughs> And, and it doesn't make, it really doesn't make the dish taste anchovy Anyway, and that's it. So all those ingredients I just listed, that's it. Obviously a little salt with the, you know, oh wait, garlic. <gasps> I didn't say garlic. My apologies. I was just okay, going to so, say, what about the garlic? <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Okay. So you've got the garlic, the anchovies, the red peppers, olive oil, and then the the pasta, the orecchiette, and this green chimedirapa, and that's it. I've been, I've been eating this dish for years and years now. And I make it, I don't know, a couple times a month when we can find broccoli rob. Sometimes in the States, mm. like when we lived in Hawaii, we, we got broccoli rob once <laughs> the whole time we were there. It was wow. impossible to find. We, wow. It's like of all the wonderful bounty we had in Hawaii, but the, we could not find broccoli rob there. But anyway, what I wanted to say is the way that I make this dish now, and this might be heresy to Italian ears, but I prefer not to blanch the broccoli rabe. Really? In the last several years, my taste for bitterness has gone off the charts. I love it. I love the bitter vegetables and yeah. the blanching. Again, this might be heresy. The blanching tends to take some of that bitterness away that I it, really it love. It mm-hmm. And so I just lightly, I, I, uh, Thinly slice some uh, garlic, put some olive oil, some pepperoncini, and then I add in the broccoli rabe with a little bit of a pinch of salt and just gently saute it until it until it wilts down. And for me, I find it has a much more robust flavor. And I don't know, maybe Italians would say it's heresy. Um yeah, it might not be the traditional way of making the dish, but that sounds excellent. That sounds excellent. Well, maybe and you try just, it and get back to me. Yeah, I will. I will. Um, also, just so that uh, we don't leave people hanging that do want to make the dish, I, it, might, it might be obvious, but, but basically, after I when I drain the pasta and chimedirapa, 
I toss it in the pan okay. with these other things. <laughs> yes, don't leave yeah. that stuff out. <laughs> don't leave that out. And and also, and then in terms of going back to like what's traditionally Italian and how they would and would not do things, um, this is a dish that actually, you know, you can put a drizzle of quality extra virgin olive oil mm. on top. To, yes. me, to me, that is the best yes, yes. Um, finishing for this dish. And, you know, I think when I, b- before I moved here, I was like, oh, and then they add parmigiano reggiano on top of everything. And actually they don't, and they're quite specific about the dishes they do and they do not. So this is a dish that, um, that yeah, you, you would not put, you would not put that uh, sprinkle of parmigiano reggiano, just a bit of olive oil and it's perfect. Uh, you bring up the Parmesan. Let's talk cheese because you're, you're the expert mm. on cheese, wine, and bread. We've covered the bread <laughs> with the focaccia. Yes. Uh, we've Wait, co- no, we haven't talked about the focaccia. Oh, no, we haven't. We talked about pizza dough. <gasps> yes. We have to, oh. Okay, before we go on to cheese, let's talk about focaccia because we I, must. We I must. watched your video about focaccia in Bari. And I've never had focaccia in Bari. I'm familiar with focaccia. I think of it in Genoa and Cinque in the Ligurian mm-hmm. region, which is in right. the exact opposite corner of the peninsula of Italy. You're in Bari. And there is a famous focaccia made in Bari, and I am just drooling over this watching this video. Tell me about the focaccia in Bari. You need to try it. It's so sticking delicious. And I mean, nothing against focaccia other places in Italy. You know, every region slightly different. And in Genoa, they have amazing focaccia too, of course. Hey, I'm not like, I'm not hating on their focaccia, but this focaccia in Bari, focaccia barese, is crispy it's it so if you know i think a lot of people think of focaccia and they think pillowy yes spongy and almost. and maybe spongy yes and with like a lot of herbs on like a lot of like a rosemary mm. and herbs on top that's all great and delicious that is not focaccia parese focaccia parese is has a really really crispy i'm talking like crunchy crunchy crispy um bottom and then it does still contain some fluffiness on the top but like utmost importance is like the bottom has to be like super super crunchy and crispy and then on top the traditional toppings are like cherry tomatoes so tomatoes but not the big big tomatoes smaller tomatoes halved put on top and green olives with the pit and if you saw the video you saw how hilarious like these yeah the barese are very very um specific about this and the olive must have the pit and if it doesn't have a pit then it's not legit right (laughs) if there's no pit it ain't legit exactly sounds like a johnny cochran (laughs) um so is is the focaccia and barre is it just the cooking method that makes it different or is there a different ingredient involved? So part of it is the actual ovens that they that they use. So the the ovens in Bari are like this hailed equipment, piece of equipment. They're like this ancient, incredible oven and they get very, very, very hot. So it's partially the equipment used to make the focaccia, but then it's also partially just the way the way in which it's made um which entails a lot of olive oil mm. so does the uh, so does the other focaccia too let's see i'm trying to think i wonder if there's lard in the 
Barise Fricaccia, simply because I wonder if the lard makes it a little bit fluffier in Genoa, and you know, without it, it might be a little bit crispier. I'm just speaking off the top of my head. Yeah, you know, I think you might have something there. I am 99% sure that the focaccia in Bari does not have lard, partially because of like what we were just talking about, regional differences and um, lard, you know, comes from animals and, and that, you know, that would have been a little harder to find. Whereas this this region has always been rich in olive oil. We're going to go with my crackpot theory that the yeah, difference between you know. <laughs> Genoan and uh, <laughs> Barise focaccia is the lard or no lard question. Yeah. And, you know, I think you really might have something there. I really do. So there's focaccia. There's the bread part of uh, cheese, wine, and bread. Let's let's talk about cheese because one of my favorite cheeses is from uh, this area of Italy that you're in, in Puglia, the Baratta. Uh, mm. Talk about burrata, please, Katie, and don't leave anything out. <laughs> oh, so burrata is mozzarella-esque. So if it just as like a starting point, people are like, what is this? So it's mozzarella-esque. It is a fresh cheese that is, I, for lack of a better word, like milky. It's it's like a fresh, you can still like taste the milk. Um, it is a round of cheese, when you cut into it, it just spills open with stracciatella, this uh, incredible... Creamy, stretchy, yes, liquidy. Creamy and stretchy, <laughs> yes. All of those words. Creamy, stretchy, liquidy, Brent, that's perfect. It just, <laughs> it just spills out. It spills out. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's actually from... So yes, it's from this region. It's from, from a town called Andrea, which is a about five minutes driving, five, 10 minutes driving from where I'm living. Um, and so I have had some of the best burrata, absolutely the best burrata, not some of the absolutely the best burrata I've, I've ever had in my life. You're getting it from the source, Katie. I mean, this is the place yeah. to get it. And this is, this is what is an, another one of my crackpot theories, which is um, burrata Getting burrata in the U.S. can be a disappointing experience simply because mm -hmm. it comes from Italy to the U.S. And usually, usually that's okay. But in the case of burrata, I think it's really important for it to be fresh. And to get the fresh yeah. burrata, like you're getting right there from the place, is so important. This is why, and this is the controversial part, this is why if you can find someone who is a U.S based dairy that's local to you that will make burrata, I would almost prefer that over the Italian if you're here in the U.S., simply because yeah. of the freshness issue. I would agree with you that freshness is key to this cheese. I think when I was describing it, I was like, it's a fresh cheese because that's what it is. So it's it's meant to be eaten fresh. Um, this is not a cheese that ages well. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and th I think that's been my problem with getting some of the burrata in the U.S. while you go to Italy and it's just a transformational experience. Yeah. So we got to talk wine before we let you go, Katie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite wines, the first time we went to Puglia, uh, we discovered the Primitivo. And this was at a time when, you know, in the U.S., Primitivo was difficult to find. But when you could find it, it was cheap. I mean, you could literally get mm -hmm. bottles for 6 or $7. Um, those days have changed a little bit. Primitivo's been kind of discovered by wine aficionados. Um, yeah. But talk a lot of Italian grapes and wines oh, have sure. been 
Yeah, they're kind of on the rise, aren't they? But we talked about Prosecco in the last episode we had, John. I remember when I was first drinking Prosecco decades ago, and you could get it for under $5 a bottle easily. (laughs) Those days are long gone, man. Um, For sure. But talk a little bit about the Primitivo, the grapes that it comes from, and and this wonderful wine from Southern Italy. Yeah. So Primitivo is an example of the native grapes of Italy, of which there are a record-shattering number of indigenous grape varieties to this country. It's incredible. I'm blanking on the exact number, but it's something like over 3,000 indigenous grape varieties. Mm. And so if you're like, well, what's a grape variety? Like Merlot. Merlot is a grape and it's also the name of a wine made from that grape or sometimes a mix, but um, it is a, it is a variety of grape. So Primitivo is a grape from Italy, from the Southern Italian regions. Puglia is especially known for it. And Primitivo wine is then made from those grapes, from Primitivo grapes. It is a, uh, it makes a red wine, a rosso. And it is a bold, powerful, <laughs> often, I mean, and you know, it, it, definitely like fruity notes and sometimes just depending on how it's fermented, depending on so many factors of how the wine itself is made, you know, it can, it can bring on these other notes and, and nuances and subtleties. But for the most part, it is going to be a bold tannin forward, but kind of like dark fruits think like notes of blackberries black cherries you know maybe a maybe a little bit of spice in there again it's all depending on how it's fermented how it's aged what it's aged in all of those things but it's a bold it's a bold wine i love that you love such a bold wine brand it's really good i i think of it as also rustic um, now, this we're overgeneralizing when we talk about a huge grape variety, uh, a huge range of wines like Primitivo, but in general, uh, rustic. And also, I remember going to a winery, I can't remember, maybe it was Candido, um, and they showed us how Puglia is on a ledge of limestone and how the roots go down into the limestone to find the water base. And this imparts because it's on that limestone uh, base, it imparts a minerality to the wine that I just, I, I love tasting that when I have the wine. You know, you, you could almost call it a saltiness, almost a saline, but I, I think that does it a dis- disservice because you think salt and wine, you're like, oh, that would be bad. But there is a minerality, I think, to some primitivos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Um, also, a fun fact about Primitivo is that it's like the same variety as Zinfandel. Yes. Just a, a different name for the same grape. You got to be careful, though. I said that to a winemaker in Puglia once, and I thought I was going to get kicked off the vineyard. <laughs> Why? <laughs> he just didn't want to hear it. <laughs> because I oh, think well, yeah. <laughs> I think Zinfandel is associated with American and, uh, you know, uh, Primitivo is associated with Italian. I don't know why exactly, but he wasn't, sure, he yeah. wasn't thrilled. Um, and, and the other There's thing- There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of pride associated yeah. with the- items from this area. Yeah. yeah. As there should be, as there should be. Um, yeah, I get it. And, um, I think, you know, with the Zinfandel, it's hard to compare, you know, even though they're genetically almost 
identical, identically the same grape. You try a Zinfandel from California and you try a Primitivo from Italy, from Puglia, you're going to have a different experience. True. Right. And that's for so many reasons. It's right. It's so many reasons because yes, maybe the the plant is almost identical, but where is it grown? What are the circumstances in which it's grown? Is it near water? Is it on a hill? How much sunlight does it get? You know, everything. And then when it's taken into the cellar, how is it fermented and how, how is it macerated? And you know what, like there are just like endless, absolutely endless decisions that any winemaker has to make. And, and yeah, so yes, of course they're the wines here and the wines there are, are going to be very different experiences. Well, Katie Quinn, it's been great talking to you about a place where you're living now, Puglia, Italy, and one of my favorite regions of Italy. Uh, it's got me jonesing to get back to Puglia real, real soon. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was such such a joy. And next time we'll talk about Penzarotti and Pasticciotto and all of the other amazing things here. We really just touched the surface, but such a pleasure to be on. Thank you, Brent. Okay, there you go. I think I got to head over to the bottle shop and pick me up some Primitivo. I'll tell you, Puglia really is one of my favorite places in Italy. If you want to pick up Katie's books or see her videos on YouTube, go to radiomisfits.com slash DED141 for the show notes. All the links are there. That's going to do it for this week. Next week, we are in Morocco with travel adventurer Alice Morrison. That one is going to be a lot of fun. Until then, check out my blog. I just posted my recipe for orichetti and broccoli rabe, and it's definitely not traditional. I put my own spin on it that might have some Italians crying heresy, but I got to say, I've been making this recipe for decades, perfecting it along the way, and I really love it. I think you'll like it too. You can get that at destinationeatdrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Primitivo bottle collector Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 